Doctor Who Pod Shop. Okay, well, let's do it. No, I <laughs> you know, whatever it is, if it's valuable, send it to us. <laughs> <laughs> For the best in all things Doctor Who, it's Doctor Who Podshock, the podcast all about Doctor Who, the longest-running science fiction television program with Louis Trapani. Hello. Ken Deep. Hello. James Norton. Hello. News. Fabulous. Reviews. Oh, no. And fan mail for James. Uh, 40,000. Doctor Who Podshock from the Gallifrey Embassy and Outpost Gallifrey. You know, that guy James was really cool. Oh, yeah. What blew that? I'm the Doctor. And who are you? And who are you? Live from Verity's office in Lime Grove Studios, this is Doctor Who Podshock. <laughs> Post Gallifrey presents Doctor Who Podshock, this 100th episode for November 23rd, 2007, the 44th anniversary of Doctor Who. My name is Ken Deep, alongside Mr. Louis Trapani. Hey, hello. Across the pond, Mr. James Norton. Hi there. And joining us, our friends in the north, Mr. Mike Durin. Hey again. Hey, guys. Uh, good to be back. Good to have you back. Hey, truly... It's been a long time. International podcast for our 100th uh, episode. Yes. And wow. boy, have we got stuff lined up for you. 100. It's a meaty episode. <laughs> it's, uh, I never knew we'd be celebrating our 100th anniversary so soon. Yes, well, it's, it's, it's a lot. We've done a lot of podcasts, and, and, and we're very pleased to have done 100 and hopefully it'll last for hundreds more and um i just will always take the time out to thank lewis for for his uh his efforts in in editing and putting the show together and for really coming up with the idea of hey why don't we get a bunch of people from all around the world to go on skype and talk about doctor who and then we'll release it as a podcast and i remember the first thing i said to him was what the hell's a podcast <laughs> and you're still saying that. And I still say, what the hell's a podcast? Uh, but in in light of what was supposed to be a very happy 44th anniversary for Doctor Who, uh, in, on the morning uh, that I woke up on, on the 23rd here in the States, we had some very sad news in that we lost the show's very first producer and, and someone who was quite an inspiration to, to many Doctor Who fans and to to television professionals around the world. We lost Ms. Verity Lambert, uh, the show's first ever producer, um, the woman that probably single-handedly cast William Hartnell as Doctor Who, uh, and the at the time, I believe, the youngest producer ever at the BBC and the first female producer. I mean, so many groundbreaking, uh, extraordinary things that, that she had done outside of being in Doctor Who, being the, the, the pioneer, uh, we wouldn't have the show that we have today to enjoy and, and podcast about and read about. We wouldn't be doing this 100th episode of Doctor Who Podshock if it wasn't for the success of the efforts of um, Verity and what she you know, did back then. 
and uh, I, I mentioned to to James and Lewis uh, prior to our recording, uh, probably one of the one of the influences for me to to go into television, to want to be in, in television and uh, in broadcasting, in in one way or another, uh, you know, someone uh, who woke up in the morning and wound up making a a science fiction show, a time travel show for what was it, seven thousand pounds an episode or something extraordinarily low and you didn't it, it it made me realize you don't have to be George Lucas or, or, or Paramount Pictures to to make a science fiction product. You you could do it with just creativity and and some cardboard sets. Yes. Precisely. And it is I mean Lewis had sent me the email and I uh, was on out and about and but when I did check you know, I was. He sent me just a link from uh, from our fine friends at Outpost Gallifrey with the news, and I was shocked because um, it was only the other week actually that I was I was rewatching um, the Web Planet, um, the actually the special features where Verity was sort of talking about uh, the show and commenting on it, and she just all the time she was she just looked so youthful and so well and so healthy you'd have never believed that she was sort of in her 70s um no she looked she looked awesome and she did look fantastic yeah and was extremely active uh, especially with the rebirth of doctor who over the last couple of years she's she's done commentaries and conventions and yep. and really is it was funny because she she finally was sort of getting the recognition she deserved as being the um, you know, one of the, the, the founders of, of everything that we have with Doctor Who fandom and, and Doctor Who. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of our biggest regrets right now is never having the opportunity, opportunity to interview her, you know, for the show. And, um, you know, we always hope that that, would, that day would one day come. And I know that she, recently, oh, a couple of years ago, she did the Doctor Who cruise here in the States. So anybody who, who may have attended that cruise uh, and have any recollections, of, we, 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 um, we ask you to, to feel free to email us or, or voicemail us uh, uh, through many of the, the Podshock avenues of, of contacting us uh, and sharing your recollections of meeting her and, uh, and what she spoke about. And, and uh, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at this anniversary and the next month or two is as reflecting on, on her greatness. And so, um, at the same time, uh, not, not long before that, we also lost, uh, legendary Dr. Who author, Peter Haining, who, uh, who's, as we'll, you'll hear later on in the broadcast, uh, we interview two authors, Mark Schuster and Tom Powers, who wrote the greatest show in the galaxy, which is a, uh, a book analyzing Doctor Who and some of the, the metaphors behind Doctor Who and, and its cultural significance. Peter Haining was probably the first writer to put together uh, a book that was not only filled with um, with episode guides and, and, and finding your way around Doctor Who, but the first person to analyze the show beyond the fact that it was simply a television show. He, he would have Barry Letts and Terrence Dix and some of the actors in the show write about what Doctor Who means, uh, what it's all about, wh- where the uh, the inspirations come from, what some of the meanings behind the show. Um, he really was uh, one of the pioneers in getting that, um, getting Doctor Who fans prior to the internet um, to become knowledgeable about the show's history 
and uh, and what it was all about. I know that Doctor Who: A Celebration was one of the first two uh, things that I had as a resource to learn about Doctor Who when I first became a fan. Yeah, Do- Doctor Who: A Celebration was such a had such a huge impact on fandom uh, for Doctor Who because it had that list of fan clubs in the back with uh, the Fan Club of America and the Appreciation Society and to win in Canada and, and I remember and the Italian Doctor Who fan club. And I think that was so many people got connected into Doctor Who fan clubs through that book and then through those bigger clubs they found out about the smaller local clubs. Uh, and and his book did that. It it I think it, it almost created a certain level of Doctor Who fandom, certainly in North America, because that was a book you could buy at your local store. Yes. I got I got it as a present on my uh, my twelfth birthday. <laughs> and it, it it really did. We'd had the making of Doctor Who, which was very you know it's a very small book, had some mm-hmm. information, yeah. but uh, a celebration opened up a whole new whole new idea of research books on Doctor Who. And it, it was the Bible, really. Of, you know, oh yeah. To I remember find the, out about the show's history, you had Doctor Who magazine, you know, back issues of that, or um, you know, the Peter Hanning books. You know, he came out with a whole series of books. It was. Um, a great asset, especially during the during the eighties, because that's like you said, Mike. You can buy it at your local store. Uh, well, that's that's probably the first thing that you that you remember about uh, Doctor Who: A Celebration was that it was the one of the few books here in the states that was uh, easily accessible. You didn't have to go to a comic store to find it. You didn't have to go to a specialty store and find it. It was available in B. Dalton and Walton Books and all you know all the places that you would normally shop for a book. Um, yeah. It was one of the few books that you could find in the early days of Doctor Who fandom. Yeah. yeah. When that book came out, my father did the most terrible thing. He, uh, well, first he bought me the book for my birthday, and that was great. But we were about to go on a family holiday. And so the morning we were leaving to get in the car, pack up the car at the family, he showed me the book and said, this is your birthday present because my birthday was going to happen during the holiday. And you can have it when you get back. Oh. So I had to go on this. Uh, I was on this two, three-week family holiday. I don't think we went to Cape Cod and Nova Scotia and, and all over the place. All the while thinking that when I get home, I get to read a celebration. But I didn't get to read it before we left, and it was torture. Mm-hmm. It was wanted, so terrible. I always wanted him to uh, to follow up on um, what was the second book with all the articles, and it was the key, a to time. key to time. A key to time. I always wanted him to do a second volume of that. I I thought that book was fascinating with uh, a collection of articles and 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 a chrono uh, a, a chronology of uh, events, both with the production and then what was actually happening at the time. So it might be like, well, um, uh, they were filming. This episode, but this episode was on the air, and this article came out, and it, it was interesting. At certain times, you could see what impact the current episode had based on the reaction to another episode, and that's one of the few places that you could go to trace those steps. Yeah, and another great thing that uh, with Kita Time was it was full of fan artwork, uh, yes. which at the time the idea of a professional hardcover coffee table book, but it was full of fan artwork that I don't know. I don't know what system they used at the time to collect that artwork to recruit the fans. There was uh, Martin Proctor, an artist here in Toronto, had a couple of pieces in the book, and and I think you know that he got hooked up with with Dwin in those days. And um, I, the idea of just doing that was pretty revolutionary. Not to hire you know the I guess the usual designer people who would do some sort of uh, you know if you remember the art in the old annuals, not necessarily the best artwork. Uh, but getting fans to to contribute all, all the artwork that, that that went through the book was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know they say, and um, you know, 
in, in many in circles in society when a death happens that it comes in threes and also um, you know on the heels of you know um, coming into the anniversary here uh, we also lost a Datu director Peter Moffat had passed away just recently too so um, it's just been a very somber anniversary in a sense uh, Peter Moffat is um, probably um, well known for such classics as you know the, the five doctors and speaking uh, of the anniversary yeah 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 it's it's um like i said it's just been a, a series of losses here for the program it's also yeah. it's a it's extraordinary to think that next year will be the silver anniversary of the five doctors and that's that in an ex- in itself is is extraordinary you know but um it, it's as Lewis has said many times in the past on on this program, uh, please um, stop dying. <laughs> uh, we're, we're losing way too many greats, um, and I'm just I really one of the things that that we've made a, a sort of our our mission uh, behind the scenes is to try to document as as many of the um, actors and and writers and producers of the past shows. That's one of the things that we're we're trying to redouble our efforts in in uh, seeking out uh, people from the black and white days in particular um, because we don't want something like this, these regrets that we have that we never sat down with Verity Lambert. We never had a chance to ask her the questions, to document things about the show because there will come a time in the future when, when future fans and future scholars will want to know about the early days of Doctor Who and the more resources they have, the better. Yeah. Yeah, we do. We do know that there's still there's still one uh, for Verdi Lambert. She still has one uh, commentary in the can for uh, Time Meddler, which uh, they recorded last month, which uh, which still has to come out. Mm. Um, and so that's uh, it's 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 a bit like like all of Friday. It's it's bittersweet, uh, yeah. you know that, that she's gone, but we still have something more to look forward to from her. Mm. More insights uh, and. Yeah, and, and and you don't want to you don't want to sound I, I don't want to get callous about some of these things, but you hope that uh, the you know the people that the, the restoration team puts together the DVDs that they can um, you know maybe sit down with more of the people who may not may not be with us. Uh, not that we would have expected that in this case, but with us in five years when when such and such DVD might DVD might come out and uh, mm-hmm. and, and try and get you know either you know commentaries and interviews and, and get things down for uh, uh, for the record from as many people as possible. I mean, we're fortunate that that Verity made herself available recently, you know, for these, you know, commentaries and interviews and um, a lot of the stuff that that's been, you know, coming out recently. So we're thankful for that. that well, I'm I'm re- just very glad that over the last couple of years she's getting the recognition that she deserved. Um, for everything from the nod in in Human Nature to mm-hmm. uh, to uh, the convention appearances and the DVD commentaries and things like that. Um, she's an extraordinary person, and she was an extraordinary person, uh, and she'll be missed by Doctor Who fans everywhere. Yeah, it was. Uh, oh, sorry, Ken. I no, just want to say. Go ahead. Okay, I just want to say I, I did. Uh, it was a pleasure. I did get to see her once at a convention. I saw her at the big 40th anniversary convention in London uh, in in 2003. Uh, not uh, you know, perhaps the worst organized convention in history, but. But so we we didn't even know she was there until until literally she was on stage and then signing autographs after. So I, I didn't really get to meet her uh, meet her one on one there. Uh, but it was a pleasure to be able to see her at a convention. 
Did you hear and, her speak? Uh, did you hear her I, uh, her panel? I, I did. I did. The, there was a '60s panel. I, I got to hear some of, not the whole thing, because I arrived and the panel was already half over. Um, and uh, and I had a number. You know, they had a number of number of people on there, and it was just terrific. Uh, being able, to, you know, being able to uh, to hear her talk about the show. Um, I had I had actually uh, I'll admit I have I had actually seen her once before uh, when 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 Sydney Newman passed away and this month is the 10th anniversary of the passing of Sydney Newman. Uh, Verity flew to Toronto for the funeral and so I I saw her at the Sydney Newman's funeral but did not speak to her for obvious reasons. You're not going to walk up mm. to somebody as a fan at a, at a funeral but um, but when I did get to see her at that convention it was uh, absolutely terrific that. Uh, that, that she was there for that. I mean, that was the, the convention that had, uh, uh, in terms of production, people that, uh, you know, have having having multiple producers. She's up there with, uh, I think she also did a panel with, uh, with, with, with Philip Hinchcliffe and Barry Letts as well, a producer's panel. Well, you want to talk about uh, Doctor Who legends, right? Yeah, it was, uh, there, were, there were so many, uh, this, this, uh, fortunately this convention had no guest list and no schedule, so, so it's, it's a bit hard to remember all of the, all of the things, because every hour they'd have a, have a whole slew of people up on the stage, but uh, well, Mike, give uh, us, an absolutely terrific guest. Give us one, one thing that really stuck out in your mind about her on the panel and some of the things that she spoke about. I think just hearing somebody having having such good recollection of of events that happened 40 years ago, and also somebody speaking who obviously had such confidence and control and uh, authority at, at at really is quite a young age over over people. You know, yeah, you, all of the things you hear about William Hartnell, uh, mm-hmm. you know, good and bad uh, is certainly not not easy you know apparently not easy to work with and the idea of here you had this you know 27 year old young woman uh, in control in power and mm, and the authority the figure call. yeah exactly and and comfortable and secure in doing that so mm-hmm. that's the, i mean that that's the impression you got from her just this the this this you know air of confidence over that period i mean it's still it's, we're talking you know 40 years ago for her and and uh, still great recollection despite all of the stuff that that, that, that she'd done since it's and, a terrible uh, loss. And person calling the shots. Yeah, so we this episode of Podshot really is dedicated to the memory of Liberty, um, Verity Lambert, Peter Haining, and uh, of course Peter, oh gosh, his name escapes me. Peter Moffat. Yeah, Peter Moffat, sorry. Uh, really, really, really sad, but we'll never forget um, their contribution to television I mean, of course, Verity was, uh, I think, given the OBE in 2002, and certainly will all of them will never be forgotten amongst um, Doctor Who fans. Yeah, she's, she was um, up for some other award next month. I, I don't recall it off the top of my head, but she, I know she was supposed to be given some other... Some really, other, a CBE or... I'm, I'm not sure what it is. The, the, the Working Title Films Lifetime Achievement Award for oh, okay. film and television, and that's uh, just in a couple of weeks on the 7th of December. Yeah, mm. it's... Um, I mean, she passed away the day before the 40, uh, 44th anniversary, and uh, her birthday is the 27th of November. So she, you know, it's, you know, I mean, there's never That's a right time to die, yeah. but it's just um, the timing is um, uh, very, you know, very strange, yeah. On the heels of, of the Children in Need special, which celebrated um, multi generational 
the multi generational aspect of Doctor Who having David Tennant and Peter Davison and stuff. I mean, it's you know, th- it's this time of year that we we reflect on on how long the show has been around and 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 how grateful we are that it is and and that um y- you know that there's there's history to it and the people on the current team appreciate the people of the past production team and some of the reactions in, in some of the British press have been glowing, um, you know, when it comes to, to Verity's uh, impact on what they're doing today. Uh, Russell T. Davies has made no secret uh, uh, about her impact on on him and the, sh- the current show. Certainly, yeah. Living up to her standards. And, and, and Mike made a good point, you know, something that although I never, never met Verity in, in person, she comes across extremely confident. Um, something that is was probably very unusual in the time, confident mm-hmm. without ever seeming uh, seeming cocky. Uh, she managed to get a, a production team to work, uh, you know, with one vision, uh, as bumpy as it may have been in the early days, due to the restrictions of what it always comes down to money. Um, but they were all on the same page and and managed to pull off this this wonderful uh, te- at the time children's television show. I know, and everyone has said this. Everyone who we've ever met from the black and black and white era has always said that they never dreamed it would be what it is today. Um, but it is, and and it's really you know it comes back to it comes back to Verity and William Hartnell and 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 the days the very those very first days. But you know I think we're we're dwelling on this a bit long and rightfully yes. so because she she's amazing. Um, but this is also our hundredth podcast, and it's also the anniversary, the forty-fourth anniversary. So, I think the best way to honor her is to celebrate everything that we are, which is Doctor Who fans, and and everything that that the show is about, creativity yeah. and positivity, and and that's probably the best way. You know, it's it's um, we're all grateful for everything that she's done, every one of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess without further ado, let's get on to the meat of the of the show. <laughs> wait a minute! Wait a minute! <laughs> I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> the, the potatoes, then. <laughs> All right. The potatoes, indeed. The, he can have the he can have the tofu. We'll get on with the tofu of the program. But well, we have a great 100th episode for you. It's something that uh, we've been building up to for for a while. Uh, we, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, we have. We have uh, the authors of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, Mark Schuster and Tom Powers on deck. Lewis and I travel to United Fan Con up in uh, Springfield, Massachusetts uh, in early November and interviewed Wendy Padbury, and we have that on deck, plus tons of other surprises. So stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Doctor Who Podshock after this. Hello, my name's Wendy Padbury and you're listening to Doctor Who Podshock. Hiya, Lewis Cannon James and everybody who listens and joins in with Doctor Who Podshock. Just a big thank you from me, Dave AC, for all the past episodes and best wishes on the 100th Doctor Who Podshock. Have a great time, guys, and I'm going to enjoy listening to this show more than ever. Bye. Okay, 
said, this is um, our first um, recording on the road, at, literally on the road, as yes. we as we're driving to United FonzCon. It's early morning, and I'm just leaving. That was me doing Sexy James going to the Cavern <laughs> Club. We're and using a snappy device known as the Easy Pass. Yeah, we're, we're approaching the toll gate now. And it is early morning, and we are on our way to United FanCon, or as it's also known this year as United FonzCon, being that Henry Winkler is the uh, one of the main guests, along with uh, Grace Lee Whitney from Star Trek and Wendy Padbury from... Doctor Who, and uh, you know we've been very excited because we've we've really been psyched up about this interview. I know uh, I know I've been dying to ask Henry Winkler about the time that um, the spacemen came. Yeah, well, the Cybermat when the Cybermat attacked him on the back, and he <laughs> said, "Hey." <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna ask him to sit on it and see if he <laughs> if he uh, if he you know. Anyway, so we're on our way. Yes, and um, we'll be back at a. We'll be checking in at another checkpoint on the road with a further update on our trek to <laughs> United Fan Con, two thousand and seven. It's not as long as Podshock. It doesn't have remotely the same amount of in-depth interviews as the WhoCast. It's not even as full of spoilers as Outpost Gallifrey. In fact, it's just some bloke talking about the best show in the universe. The Tin Dog Podcast. Find it on iTunes. It's Doctor Who Podshock, the centennial 100th episode. And uh, we're just having a a grand old time, the fact that it's 100 episodes, because, well, let's face it, we've made it to 100, and and that's just, that's nice, because now you don't have to pay income tax anymore. And Ken, can I say something? You look fabulous for 100. I do, don't I? (laughs) It's the the stuff I use on my face. You you must (laughs) share your secret at some time. Yes, please do. It's because I'm a meat eater, Lewis. I, I, I eat a lot of red meat and, and a lot of pork products. <laughs> uh, we have a fabulous episode today. We've been going through a bunch of things. We still have more stuff ahead. But uh, right now, on the line with us, Lewis, would you introduce our two special guests? Our two special guests are none other than Mark Schuster and Tom Powers, the author of the greatest authors. show. Authors, I'm sorry, um, of the greatest show in the galaxy, the Discerning uh, Fans Guide to Doctor Who, which is a uh, a fairly new book that just uh, was published in, I believe, um, about a week or so ago in the UK, and um, maybe a, a, um, a month couple or weeks two before that in the US. Mm-hmm. It's um, 
it's a great reference or um, analytical. Um, well, well, let's ask at. let's ask Mark and Tom what the book is about. I know because I read it already. So yeah, right. Let's well, welcome them yeah. to the show first, Mark and Tom. Yeah, well, thank welcome you. guys. Some, Pensil- some Pennsylvania fellas. Is that true? Yes, yes. We're a couple of chaps from Pennsylvania, and we're glad to be on the show. Especially if you didn't realize it was going to be your one hundredth episode. That's exciting. Oh yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, our book is about, uh, as as you might guess, it's kind of a, a pop culture reading of Doctor Who. It's uh, it kind of goes beyond the, the standard. Well, this episode is about this thing, and uh, gets more into you know what's the deeper meaning? What is the what is the social significance of Doctor Who? Mm. Yes, I noticed. I, I think the first thing when I'm, when the book first arrived, I was pre- maybe wrongfully preparing to open it up and see something similar to some of the books that have been out before where it's chronologically, you know, Earthly Child, Daleks, Edge of Destruction, you know, the, the, the episode guide form to the book. And yours isn't like that at all. It's weaving together some of the, the allegories behind the show and, and some deeper meanings, trying to really sew up everything that the show means, everything that the show is about, all the things over the years that, that Doctor Who has either consciously or unconsciously made a statement about. Yeah, and all in the space of about uh, 200 pages. Yeah, right. and, it, uh, and in many ways also, it's, it's, it's in the form of modern scholarship, I would say, in terms of uh, the Journal of Popular Culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, I would say, late 90s issues of Doctor Who, where they look at the show... From a pop cultural suspect, you know, perspective, but at the same time, they're being scholarly with it. But at the same time, they're being tongue in cheek and kind of laughing. Yeah, they're having fun with it, and I think that's really what we are trying to do with this book: trying to have fun, even as we were saying, "Hey, Doctor Who's a really smart show, and it's worth looking into." But we don't want to, didn't want to weigh it down with all kinds of uh, scholarly jargon that would just turn readers off. It, it seems almost anti-Doctor Who to try to take a show that doesn't take itself seriously seriously. You know, it, to be that heavy in your analysis of a show like Doctor Who just sort of goes against everything that the show is about. You can be tongue-in-cheek. It's meant to be tongue-in-cheek. And many of the, the Doctor Who's best um, best reflections on pop culture or modern society have been when they've been over-the-top and funny. Because, you know, it, it disarms the viewer when you're watching something like the Sunmakers, and they're talking about you know death taxes and things like that it's so ridiculous as to make it seem that what we do on a as a society yeah it's, it, funny. It, That's it's the, supposed uh... to be over the top it's supposed to be beyond you know it's supposed to be ridiculous because it is yeah. ridiculous yeah, that episode occurred to me too. I mean, just uh, you know mr fibula no that's in uh, the pirate planet mr fibula in the uh, you know the the what was it? The parrot on the uh, the captain's shoulder, and just uh, mm-hmm. all this stuff that you know, taking the old stereotypes about pirates and, and then throwing them into the future and just playing around with it. Mm-hmm. And wow. the show has such a, a strong sense of humor that it's really to to be humorless about reading the show would would just not work. Or there's there's moments in uh, say Dragonfire was it episode one or two? You remember where the doctor uh, he's approached by the guard. And he starts uh, quoting. He starts quoting from the unfolding text to try to screw the guard up, and the guard 
can quote back from it. And uh, even in the Shakespeare Code from Series 3, when the doctor says, what was it, 100 academics punch the air when there's a revelation about Shakespeare from the man himself. Mm. <laughs> yeah, all very much tongue-in-cheek, I guess. But speaking about the, the technical language, was it, I mean, because you guys are, are both sort of college professors, is that right? Yeah, more or less. It's uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what we do for a living. But I guess at the same time, it's our our students are really down to earth. We don't teach graduate level or anything like that. So a lot of right. our job involves breaking things down and, and making them digestible to uh, uh, you know your 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 casual observer. And and right. I had that moment that moment before my class when I stand there and try to I, I hold the book. I said, oh, by the way, I write too. When they're struggling with their essays. And then I, I tried to, they say, Dr. Who, what's that? I'm like, well, he travels in time in this blue box, and it's... Uh, I usually just say, uh, buy the book, and yeah. you'll find out. <laughs> Shameless plug. Absolutely. <laughs> Do you think you could ever teach a, uh, a course on, on the book and then thereby greatly increase your, your readership? That's kind of what they always seem to do at my university anyways. Tend to have courses about stuff, books that the professors have already <laughs> written anyway. Very clever way of uh, getting your material out there, I guess. But yeah. you know, it is it is a fantastic read. I mean, for me and Ken and I were just talking about this before we kind of hit the record button. Is that there's so much in here? That what I like about these books is you you kind of learn interesting tidbits that you wouldn't um, have otherwise known if if you if you weren't a a major Doctor Who fan or or had read the book, parts that were not in other books, you know, um, that for me was the, the most fun part of the book. Can you kind of briefly summarise what are your what's your favourite bit bit of information about Doctor Who? Something that perhaps listeners out there wouldn't have known before reading the book. I think Tom did some really interesting things. Uh, we each of us kind of worked on on certain chapters a little bit more than others, and. Uh, Tom did some really interesting things with the uh, Time Lord culture that I really never mm-hmm. gave much thought to. And, and he, he really put it in a context of, I think, both British and American politics explaining, all right, here's, here's what Time Lord culture is all about. And, and also some neat things about, well, here's actually how it's, it's a lot like a mafia movie at the same time. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, every chapter almost opens with the the offer he can't refuse. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's such a such a perfect moment, you know, and you realize, oh my goodness, you know, the the, the time lords are totally taking advantage of him and, and they just have him painted into a corner all the time. And even if I guess and even in uh, series three when we see the master when he goes down to uh to London looking for Martha Jones. And he has his henchmen on either side of him. He's like, Martha, Martha Jones. I mean, that's, that's very much a godfather moment. You can see him there with his, his buttons or his hitmen on the either side of him. Now, yeah, one of the, I hadn't thought about that. One of the most fascinating things in the book for me is the, um, I'll, I'll use the word analysis, the analysis of, of the doctor's sexuality and his role in, over the years in the show from being a, uh, a paternal figure to being a younger, um, sexier, I guess. Yeah, when they when they made him a younger, sexier, it actually gave him some some love scenes. But there's a, there's a part in in the chapter where you're speaking about how he treats his companions and and the role they play, which I find fascinating. How the Doctor didn't bring Sarah Jane back to Gallifrey because he perhaps he feels um, 
I don't know whether you use the word ashamed or or that 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 he they weren't up to the Gautly Time Lord standards, and now that the Time Lords are out of the way, he can have certain people in the TARDIS. That to me is it's fascinating. I don't know if I fully agree with it, but the the fact that you dive into that and you start questioning his motives um, is is makes me rethink the Doctor's character. That's. Some of the things we take for granted with the Doctor, we always just assume he's always on the side of right and he's always this moral character. But he does have other motivations, and and you can only go by what you've seen in the show. And if what you see in the show is a particular way, there are multiple interpretations of it. And the way you've interpreted it in, in that way, he doesn't bring Sarah to Gallifrey, but he does bring Layla to, to, to Gallifrey, and for certain reasons. And the first thing he does is is cast her out. Um. <clears throat> Those things yeah. are fascinating to me. Right. And it's funny, too. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, uh, you know, there, there can be all of these different readings. You know, the, at the most literal level, one could be tempted to say, well, you know, it's just a TV show. And the reason he doesn't bring Sarah Jane is because she's being written out of the script. But, um, you know, but we need to take that other, other step and say, well, here's how we're interpreting it. But we also like the idea that you can say, uh, we can say this is our interpretation, but another fan can come out and say, well, what if you look at it this way? And then, you know, Tom and I can meet a fan who we've never met before, and we could start having an actual conversation about this and, and just saying, oh, well, and we inform each other. And it, I think it contributes to the overall sense of Doctor Who lore in general and, and deepens our, our appreciation for the show. Well, that's exactly yeah. it. I don't particularly agree with your analysis of that, but it will make me watch the show in a different light the second time I watch it or the next time I watch it, I should say. Um, because I'm always looking for a new angle to watch the same program with, uh, to find something else in it. And that, to me, is one of those things that, you know, you, he brings Nyssa, he doesn't bring Sarah, those kind of things. And and um, I remember about 20 years ago, if you guys remember being Pennsylvania uh, folks, if you remember the Jersey Jaggeroth was a, a fan club out of New Jersey, uh, there was an interesting article that they had written back in the mid-80s about racism in Doctor Who up until that point. Uh, and it was a fascinating read. Again, I didn't particularly agree with it. But there were some points brought up. And again, you, you go back and you watch the show and you say, well, is the article true? Is, is the, the hypothesis that the author is, is supposing, is there a case for it? Yeah, I think that's the kind of neat thing about both of us being English teachers, too, uh, especially in college. I think a lot of our students have been through high school and, you know, their teachers have always said, well, this is the right way to read this play by Shakespeare. And then they come to college and they want us to say, you know, well, here is the right way to read this book. And we have to come out and say, well, no, let's let's have a real discussion about this. Let's figure out what are the many multiple ways of reading this, but also at least trying to justify it somehow. And I think that's what a lot of what we do. Uh, that's why a lot of what we do works. Pro, pro, part of the problem that we have here in the States is that students are usually uh, waiting to be told the correct answer. And one of the things in The Sopranos this past year, the finale of The Sopranos, the thing that annoyed so many people about it was it, it required them to make the decision as to what happened in the end. And it wasn't definitive, of course. Yeah, you know, and people don't like that sometimes. They don't want to make their own choice. Uh, certain people, and that's, I think, one of the things that brings science fiction fans together, they want the answer to be left open to interpretation. They want the discussion. 
But I yeah. think that many people and you bringing up the students, this is this is a, a, an issue of, of a different topic. But why does there have to be an answer? Why can't it be 2001 A Space Odyssey? Why can't there be multiple answers? Why can't it be your answer? Yeah, and even uh, even Russell T. Davies said that in a, a Doctor Magazine column recently, where uh, he was remarking about Gary Gary Russell was doing a Doctor Who encyclopedia book, and he wanted to say that the cruciform was on Gallifrey in terms of the time war. And he's like, no, 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 that's not true. And then uh, Gary Russell was more or less asking, well, where is it? And he said, I don't know where it is. And just as much as I don't know what happened to Harriet Jones' Golden Age, it's up for the it's up to the viewer to decide. They create that sense of closure in terms of what the characters are doing or their motivation that we we ourselves are part of the writers of it in a way in terms of fan fiction or blog, et cetera. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's also interesting that you bring up that point because the, the current generation of producers and writers at, for Doctor Who grew up with it. And so they had all of this stuff and they were fans and were part of the discussions and they had debates and, and ideas about, you know, what X meant or Y went, and now they're writing that into the story. So this kind of stuff is important and is sort of relevant to the uh, current series because quite a lot of times, you know, our listeners will write in and say, you know, hey, well, what do you think will happen if, if the Sontarans come back or how could they come back or, you know, whatever. That's what's so exciting and, and as a whole new element to, to the show itself rather than just being, oh, well, that's the end of the story there. You know, there's no further discussion. There is, there's, you know, it doesn't always have to be so black and white. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I, I think, too, that we get this sense of, uh, I mean, the, the fact that there's this big hole in Doctor Who history, which is the time war, just is, is so perfect because you just yeah. Whoever is watching the show now, 20 years from now, might be become a you know a producer on the show or writer for the show or script editor, and you know you can only imagine what how their imagination is currently working and how that's going to apply itself to the show in a future iteration. Mm-hmm. And maybe by that point we'll know, uh, you know, who's this kid, who's who was his wife, uh, who's his brother that was mentioned in uh, Smith and Jones. I mean, maybe we'll see the whole family in a plethora of spin-offs who knows <laughs> could happen it could happen well why not when you've got the sarah jane adventures and so on and so forth um, and who knows what new uh, sonic devices will come out indeed right. <laughs> indeed but just going back to the book i mean there must have been a tremendous amount of research that had to go into this thing because i mean it's fairly compact it's a you know, it's a nice little sort of book that's 200 pages long. But even so, how many, just exactly how many years did it take to write this thing? It must have taken up quite a big portion of, of well, your, both uh, your lives for a while. I guess I'm 34 now, and I've been watching Doctor Who since I was eight or nine. Uh, <laughs> so I think, had you told me when I was eight or nine years old, all of this stuff that you're committing to memory is going to come in handy one day, I might not have believed you. But, but I think uh, in, in a very... It, odd way, you know, it's it's the book that my whole life and my subconscious I've been writing. I think the I, same. I was going to say, this is the book you were born to write. Yes, yeah. And in many ways, I mean, I think about Foucault. I'm like, wow, I put Foucault in that book. Or Orwell shooting an elephant. This essay I told so many times at the point where I'm like, ugh. You know, but I, I found something interesting in it, I hope. And, uh, you know, as Mark said, it's about watching Doctor Who for 
two decades. It's about, I guess, you know, scattered bits of our education. Plus, at the same time, Mark would say, hey, I want to do cyborg theory. And then he would disappear for a few weeks and then pop up with this chapter. And I can tell he did all this research. And, uh, you know, I did a lot of research on the doctors, you know, in terms of having split personalities and such. And I had a – I mean, I was almost going crazy trying to read uh, – Psych, you know, theories on psychology because that, that in itself is just theories upon theories upon theories. So, mm. in many ways, you know, the learning curve for us was taking everything we know and then trying to find out new stuff and then spin it all together. Yeah, it's like throw it all in the blender and, and see what kind of new recipe we come up with 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 Doctor Who, and that's why you get all these things. References to, like we said, The Godfather, even Spider-Man comic books. Anything we could think of just to uh, all of the things that we love, we tried to put into this and, and attach to Doctor Who in some way. Tom, how did you guys wind up sitting down one day and saying, let's write a book on Doctor Who? Like, how do you wake up in the morning and commit to something like this? Uh, well, I was sitting in Mark's office and we, you know, we knew each other years ago and we met up again uh, where we teach. And we were talking about a collaboration. And I I'd come up with an idea, Mark's like, eh, I don't know about that. And then one day we start talking about what it, we start, we realized we were both Doctor Who fans. So we're sitting there and we were talking about writing a book about being a Doctor Who fan. And then we started sending these emails back and forth until we we're up to around, I mean, I saved them all for the book, but we had around good 17 pages of text of emails. So that actually formed the nucleus of the book and we just start putting it together. Yeah, I think one of the first emails was about how we loved Robots of Death. And just both of us <laughs> thought this was a classic episode. And I think that's the real book started with the, the cranky cyborgs idea and the idea that the Daleks and Cybermen must be really jealous of the robots of death because they're just so cool. You know, the whole, please do not throw hands at me. You would never hear a cy Cyberman or a Dalek say that. Right. They're so Art Deco and the other ones are so pepper pot and, you know, yeah, cyborg-y. Yeah. Tinfoil-y. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and they wear boots with shoelaces. <laughs> so they're sexy... They, it started out as sexy robots, but it's amazing that that you just this one simple email about the robots of death started off on on a book journey. That's that to me is always the most amazing part because I don't think at that moment that you you two knew that that was the beginning of a book. Yeah, that's really amazing too, and it, it's pretty cool that it's also it's our first book for for the two of us. So um, just the idea of how did these books come across, and and you know. When I just think of how just by happenstance our book came out, I just imagine, wow, how do all these other books that I see come about? Is it just – is it equally a matter of serendipity? Yeah, um, and what's also interesting uh, was the whole process of writing the book because Mark and I constantly we would refer back to the idea of dueling banjos because at the same time we're, we're pushing each other on but then – it's kind of like, oh, look at this chapter I wrote. What do you think about that? How are you going to top that one? And so that just raises the bar again and again where, I mean, sometimes <laughs> it's very dizzying. Yet at the same time, it, it's so euphoric to reach that moment. You're like, wow, I'm capable of thinking about this in terms of Doctor Who. And, I mean, otherwise, it's one of those things you may think about before you go to bed at night. Like, hmm, well, why is the Doctor so sexist or – yeah, how are we like Daleks? I mean, stuff like that you, you'll think about and then going to sleep and have Daleks chasing you and wonder why the doctor <laughs> hates you or something. But, you know, I mean, but honestly, to sit there and put so much brain power into such something that was so much fun to write. And I'm, and I'm sure for both of you, it must have been a difficult task to have to go and research by watching, you know, um, hours and hours of Doctor Who. Yeah, hours of Doctor Who. I, I, that probably was probably the most difficult, I would imagine. 
Yeah, fun, fun, but difficult because it's a matter of uh, it, it helped when it was on DVD because it's much easier to pause and find scenes. Uh, but when we were rewinding old VHS tapes, it was just oh. it was crazy. You know, it was just kind of trying to figure out through the scratchiness of the sound. Like, what what did he just say there? Oh, uh, I think it's this. And then both of us sitting down, I, I, you know, I'd say to Tom, I think he's saying this. Is this what he's saying? And then we'd listen and kind of come to a consensus. Oh, yeah, that is definitely what he's saying. Yeah. So it's not just having to get through the British accent there and everything else. The, it's also the dodgy uh, recording itself. That's good to know. <laughs> and and there, there are those parts where as much as you can love Doctor Who, you're writing and then what you love so much becomes work. You have that moment like, wait, it's supposed to be fun. <laughs> I mean, then you pull yourself away and we'd pull ourselves away away from it and then say, oh, well, this is fun. Oh, yes, I love Doctor Who. Yeah, one great thing about being done with the book is now we can just watch the show uh, as fans again as opposed to as fans slash scholars and we could just really enjoy the <laughs> So now the analysis has happened. Now you can just sit down and watch and enjoy the show. <laughs> well, it's frustrating too. Yeah, yeah, until the next book maybe. Well, in yeah, the moments but... when uh, Series 3 aired and the special just aired and especially uh, – the children in need special with the fifth doctor. Cause I was mm. thinking about today on my way to Mark's, I was thinking, wow, there's so much we can say about in terms of multi doctor uh, personas for, for time crash and how I'd like to just somehow weave that into the book, but we have to wait until the second edition now. So, and it's, it's, it, it's constantly growing. I mean, the mythos is constantly expanding and, and it's a good thing and a bad thing in that you constantly want to, I guess like light and ghost light where he wants to categorize everything and a doctor said, you can't do that. You can't just put it all in a box. It's mm. just, life's constantly going to be evolving. And same thing with scholarship, same thing with our love of Doctor Who. It's constantly evolving. It, mm. seems, uh, it seems like uh, with, with a show like Doctor Who or, or any show that's currently on the air and looking like it's going to go for a long run, similar to sports books, I never understood how they could have um, a record book when the next season was going to be played only a few months later, it, it almost seemed like, well, and then I'm going to have to go buy the next one. But I guess that's, that's part of what, what they, they're hoping for is that there's constantly a new number to put in there. Yeah, when, you know, watching the last season two, Daleks Evolution or Daleks in Manhattan, it was uh, just seeing that. We, I, I was just thinking myself how much of that would have really nicely fit into so much of the book. It just it worked so nicely and almost in some ways almost proved a lot of the theories that we were working with saying, oh, yeah, this is definitely the direction that they're going with the show. You said that that each of you wrote chapters on your own when they were done. Um, was there anything that you had to do to sew it all together? Was there something that you had to sit down and say, okay, we've got this, you've got this, I've got this. How do you weave it all together into one cohesive book? Well, look at the, uh, the second to last chapter uh, on Red Kang's are best, right? And uh, mm -hmm. the language, you know, language games in the universe. And, I mean, I wrote the first draft of that, and I said to Mark, I said, Mark, this is the kind of chapter you would have loved to have written. And then, of course, Mark helped finish it because, you know, he would come in and look at some of the live theory and say, oh, I don't know about that. And you have to put that in there. And so that, that chapter is probably the best example of uh, intellectual synthesis between the two of us as we come together and try to figure out how do you add these theories, these language theories to Dr. Who. I mean, it's already a complex, uh, complex subject. And add in all this linguistic stuff and theorists and – yeah, so that 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 example, I mean, that chapter is probably a prime example of the, the best nature of uh, collaboration. Yeah, say. and I think our our writing uh, too, just our process was, 
I'd finish a chapter, then I'd give it to Tom, and he might plug in a little section or might suggest that I make a change. Then when we had the whole manuscript done, uh, kind of it went to me. It went to me, and then it would, uh, you know, I'd give it back to Tom, then he'd give it back to me, so that it really is both of our voices is kind of mm-hmm. almost harmonizing uh, throughout the whole thing to make it feel like it reads as if one person wrote it. And there's a moment where Mark was looking at... Uh, Somewhere in the beginning where we're, we're giving our thanks to uh, the other – the writers that came before us. He goes, did you write that? He goes, because I thought I wrote it. But, and, you know, that just, that just again, is an example of how we start to – we make Doctor Who illusions often. But how – think about contact when the doctors put their minds together. <laughs> we start to create this one unified voice. Yeah, and, and there, I mean, there are a lot of moments too where we're just – you know, there, there are passages in the book where neither of us can say for sure who wrote what. Yeah, it's interesting. Contact, you know, or snap. In, snap. In yeah. certain cases, you don't rem- you actually don't remember whether was that mine or. Yeah, well, it's I, a very odd phenomenon, and it's it's I, just uh, there. There would be times too. Uh, I mean, even with the uh, the weird the the thing on the cover with the uh, Leonardo da Vinci picture, uh, the doctor with the, uh, with the I guess scarf. the the scarf. Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, I think Tom and I both sent emails to each other at exactly the same time, saying, "Hey, wouldn't this be a neat thing to have on the cover?" and uh, and then our response back to each other also at the same time was snap, uh, as in the two doctors, you know. Mm. Well, I, have you, to say- I always wondered, uh, you know, how two authors come together and write. Do they sit in the same room? Do they sit in separate rooms? Do they pass stuff back and forth? It, it's interesting to, to, to hear about that because I, I think most people assume a writer sits down at a typewriter and, or word processor now and just bangs out their thing and then refines it and refines it. But when you see multiple writers that isn't a ghost writer, like, you know, an autobiography with help from, you know, Right, whomever. exactly. The Monica Lewinsky story by someone else. You know. Yeah, by well, so, right, exactly, by someone else. And she just happened to be there. Well, yeah. the other – Yeah, go ahead. Anecdote. Uh, yesterday I was, I was with my nephews and my sister at a uh, – at a, uh, giant pet store in the middle of Norristown, Pennsylvania. And uh, they have sharks swimming around and they had the, they called it the world famous two headed turtle. So I'm like, where's this? My sister said, you have to see this two headed turtle. I'm like, where is it? Where is it? I'm expecting to see this giant turtle with the two heads just, you know, kind of right next to each other. Like, Hey, you're my other head. But the funny thing about the turtle was it had two heads, but the heads were on the opposite ends of the shell. So I said to my sister, I said, that's so sad because do those two turtles know that they're the same, had, share the same shell? Like, hey, buddy, I'm trying to walk this way and you're going that way. I mean, and it's sometimes collaborations are like that. I mean, but, I, you know, I like to think that the turtles say, hey, all right, you're over here. I'm over there. You're my brother or whatever you are. And uh, I'm going somewhere with this. <laughs> but I, I think collaborations in terms of us sitting in a room and typing together, no, we'd probably just argue. I mean, it'd be like the doctor's arguing. But I think, as again, we would uh, correspond over the phone via email. We'd, I'd go to Mark's office and we'd talk and then we'd write and then talk again how we're going to revise this, how we're going to fix this. So I think that's the best way. I think uh, Mario Puzo or, or Francis Ford Coppola and Puzo agreed. I mean, if you look at Godfather 1 and 2, the way they wrote that was Puzo uh, would sit in a room, write a draft, then pass it to Coppola. And they said that was the best way to collaborate. But then when they wrote Godfather 3, they sat together and just look at the result. <laughs> Terrible. Terrible. Poor guy knocking on Godfather 3. Well, I, I think the God, book Godfather reads... 3 gave us Joey Zaza. <laughs> you can't argue with that. I, I think the book reads very well. You know, you, you're exploring some really – some. Um, Difficult concepts, if you will, or um, 
you know, where you might expect to see books like this or on television shows like Star Trek that were meant to be allegorious telling um, or, or the Twilight Zone or uh, the Prisoner series. Uh, when you think of Doctor Who, you don't really think of it telling, um, being allegorious to all these um, other things that you mentioned in the book here. And reading it, it's it, it really is um, a, a good read where it doesn't belabor things. It will... It's it's very conversational, but um, it's it's some, and if you're a Doctor Who fan, it's it references other items in Doctor Who, like it, like the book kind of starts off um, using the the story Carnival of Monsters to really um, introduce you to the series itself, and you know, and that's something that yes, Carnival of Monsters always had some um, you could read into Carnival of Monsters and 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 see what the, the script writer and story was saying about society, but uh, not about the program itself. But now when I watch it again, I'm going to see, yes, the, the, the doctor is the showman and, and, the, um, and his box is the TARDIS and, and, and we're all um, in it for the ride, for the showmanship of it. And um, I think anyone that's a fan of Doctor Who, either if you're a longtime fan or even if you're just a new fan, you'll get a lot out of this book because there's... Um, it, it says a lot without being overwhelming, and and it's and it's an interesting read, and I and I think having both of you writing it, it's it's not confusing in any way, and it does speak, I think, with one voice. So kudos to both of you for accomplishing that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. What has the reaction been? I know the the book has only been out a short time, uh, only a couple months in the states, and and even less than that in the UK. Have you have you had any feedback on it? Um, just kind of anecdotal. Uh, we've spoken to a couple of people who have read the book and part of us, uh, at least part of me, I always have this paranoid sense of, well, oh, you're just praising it to my face. What are you saying behind my back? But, um, uh, there haven't been too many, uh, actual reviews that we've seen yet, but it seems from the fans that we've spoken to, they all seem, uh, they're pretty, pretty happy with it. What do you think, Tom? I think it's interesting, the feedback we received uh, so far in terms of people say, oh, you've written a book, and they'll start to give us, share with us their philosophies on the show. And I'm especially amazed as a male that see so many female fans now. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. when I'm like, oh, don't you love Doctor? I'm like, where are all you girls back in the day? I mean, <laughs> but I mean, that's what's interesting. Yeah, I like mean, when I was yeah. 15, you know, where were you? <laughs> but well, uh, yeah, a, it's I'm probably sorry, yeah, the it's, big difference between the fandom 20 years ago and now is that there is a there is a pretty balanced male to female ratio that that didn't exist before part of it may be that um over the last 25 years or so science fiction is way more mainstream than it ever was mm. uh, especially with shows like buffy and things like that 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 girls can relate to um where at one time star trek was the original star trek was very guy oriented i i remember being a kid in junior high school and high school and having girls say to me, I don't understand Star Trek. You know, it's like, well, uh, it's, you know, it's a spaceship. I mean, what's not, <laughs> not to understand? But right. now you have, um, I think, the the level of sophistication when watching things. I think that's also a tribute to many of the new writers and producers who are not making shows about, I just computated this 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 formula and I figured out the answer to Doctor Who having you know, this feeling with Rose and some things like that. They're making it something for both 
sides of the coin. There are emotions involved and there's science involved. Yeah, I think I it's think, very human is, is might be the word. You know, it's very human oriented as opposed to hardware oriented as as maybe some of the older ideas about science fiction might be. And that's and you know, the fact that he is romantic with Rose that that we see him crying, you know, more so than for example, John Pertwee as the third doctor did when when Joe Grant left. Mm-hmm. And I, and and it, it doesn't hurt that you know David Tennant is is the you know one of the Britain's sexiest males or whatever he was voted recently and and that yeah we have a guy like James uh, on Podshock who's you know you bring, bringing do. sexy back. You flatter <laughs> me too much, sir. You really do. <laughs> Well, it's interesting in terms of gender in that the female characters can possess what formerly known as masculine traits, such as being heroic and strong and they save the day. Yet at the same time, the male leads can be feminine. They can cry. They can express emotions. I mean, can you imagine if Captain Kirk could have been more feminine during the original Star Trek? I mean, the difference that would make in terms of the show still being accessible to all ages of, of fandom. Mm. Yes, and and I think if I if without really researching it and just pulling it out of the top of my head, I think it's for me it started with like the X Files where Scully was the skeptic and Mulder was the believer, and that's normally a, a, you know the the roles are reversed. I think audiences are ready to accept role reversal; they're ready to accept um, those changes. And Doctor Who, to its credit, has the flexibility to pull that off. Because the doctor is an alien, so we don't really know how he feels. So when we change, when the writers and producers throw us a curveball, it's simply accepted because, well, he's the doctor. You know, he's not James Bond or 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 somebody earthly. You know, earthly. Yeah, exactly. And it's we just have to trust him. And and I think it's also to uh, the credit of Russell T Davies that he comes from this. He, his his pedigree is very interesting in in the sense that he did you know uh, was it queer as folk. Um, mm, yeah, and and you know he he's able to 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 approach Doctor Who from almost a uh, I guess a more earthly position in which people's relationships are especially important to him, and this is what draws in probably the larger audience. I think his ability to to, to write dialogue that doesn't seem corny um, is probably an asset as well. Uh, you know that uh, Doctor Who likes. Certain eras of Star Trek can be very techno babble, and he stays away from that. Um, it, it's sometimes it's a negative in that sometimes it's a little too easy just to say, "Well, I used this device, or you know, magic made it happen." Um, but but the emphasis is, is as you're saying, on the human side and, and on a, you know a more earthly side, things that that regular people are relating to. Uh, do you do you see? After writing this book, and you said now series three came out, and then there, and then with the children in need special, do you see a need to follow this book up or add something to it down the line? Is that something that you think is already in the works, or what does the future hold for the two well, of you in Doctor Who writing? Uh, we have been talking to uh, a couple of publishers about uh, maybe not necessarily writing an entire book, but putting together a collection of essays on Doctor Who, to which we, we would edit the book and we would contribute essays ourselves, but maybe it would be more in line with our vision of a, a bigger dialogue in which we'd get disparate voices 
contributing to this collection and, and really having uh, a discussion or a conversation about Doctor Who. That is, uh, that's kind of something that's in the works, and we would love one day, actually, to, you know, to revisit this book. But I think there are a lot of books that are coming out now that are, um, that are looking at Doctor Who in this way, in this pop culture slash academic way that, that really give kudos to the show and, and, and necessarily uh, put it up almost uh, where it belongs, something that, that should be regarded as, as art as opposed to simply uh, entertainment. The possibility of doing a collection of essays, is that an outcrop of the reaction that you've gotten from the book with other people saying, you know, this is what I think about it, the, 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 the stimulus that happens when someone oh, reads yes. a book like this and then says, well, I always thought this. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think a lot of our interaction with other, other people kind of in our position has been at academic conferences, uh, specifically the Popular Culture Association, where they'll do three or four different um, panels on Doctor Who. So we get to meet other people from schools all around the world who are thinking about Doctor Who, writing about Doctor Who, and having met a few of them, they have some really you know, interesting ideas that, that really complement a lot of what we're doing in, in our book. Mark and Tom, um, I know you made a comparison within the book um, comparing the second and, doc, second and third Doctor when they first came and met each other in the, in the three Doctors and how they really were bickering and, and, and taking that to, comparing that to many Doctor Who fans and longtime viewers about maybe debating and discussing um, issues in the show and what's canon and what's not and um, how this really happened or what was going in the head of the Doctor. Is Susan really the Doctor's granddaughter or not? Or was there a wife? And, you know, all that type of stuff. Would, did you, both of you writing this book, collaboratively together, uh, were, did you kind of butt heads against anything? Were there anything that one person wrote saying, well, that, I don't really believe that's really what was going on there, or did that not happen, or was it, um, or, or were there some things that you kind of had to iron out between both of you before you can put it into print? There is an interesting moment in the language chapter when we're writing about the face of evil, and in many ways, I was at first, in the first stretch, I was arguing that the fourth doctor in many ways was culturally oppressing Leela and holding her back, you know, in terms of he frees her from the, uh, from the seven team, right? And even Atesh for that matter. But then he starts to indoctrinate her into time travel and how to be a lady according to the fourth doctor's view of things. And then so when Mark went through and did the second draft, he said, well, we could see that the doctor in many ways, you know, some people, we could perceive him as oppressing her, yet at the same time, he's freeing her. So Mark took a more positive slant on that. And when I first saw it, I said, oh, that wasn't the idea. But then I said, wait, look, look where in terms of synthesis, what this led to where I had this idea. And then Mark just ran with it and augmented it. So, yeah, but usually for the most part, if we had any disagreements, it became something positive. I mean, we're both very metro, so, you know. Yeah, and I think to, uh, to a large extent, um, we, we agreed on the content of the book. I think just occasionally it would be a matter of the form the book would take or how, how the writing would play out. I, I think some of it's towards the end when we were reaching our deadline. I think that's when we had our most, uh, 
I guess, you know, emotional Stress. discussions. Yeah, where it would just be, I'd say, this, this, this isn't working. This doesn't make sense at all. And someone just say, oh, give it a little love. It'll be fine. And, you know, and, and I'd be like, give it a little, oh, God. And then, you know, but then the day came when we were finished and we sent it off to the publisher. And, uh, and uh, I guess uh, we all lived happily ever after. Yeah, I mean, the, the, I, we, in many ways, I like the thrill of the chaos where, you argue, but as long as you can keep a smile during the whole process, but the chaos really leads to some great ideas you hitherto would not have considered, I think, in a collaboration, if it works well. Yeah, and it's funny, too. We both have different writing styles. I mean, I like to just write a lot and get it all done, and Tom's kind of think about it for a really long time and then write it all at the last minute. So I had all my chapters done, and Tom's just kind of like, oh, oh it's, it's there. It's in my head. It's, I'm working on it. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, thinking about it is one thing. We need it on paper. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like a Zen, I guess, with uh, Chinese brushstrokes or where in terms where the, the artist will think about the painting for, for days and then just take out the ink brush and paint it in a, in a few hours. And, you know, maybe that's not the best form, but yeah, I, I, it's kind of like the oral tradition. I'll go around, I go to Mark's office or talk to him. And I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go here with this and that. And he's like, well, where is it? I'm like, it's in my head. I'm an oral storyteller. And then of course, translating that into paper, you know, yeah, yeah, you get better at that. But you know, that's part of the collaboration. You learn from your partner how to become better at whatever you need to improve in, I think. Let me ask you both, being from Pennsylvania, what is the fan scene like there? Is there, is there anything that – any groups that you're involved in there? Is there anything on campus for either of you that, that you're active in? It's kind of like a spy novel in that you'll just find out that this person – again, with Mark, I knew Mark uh, – eight years previous to writing the book and then he just reveals me oh by the way I like Dr. I'm like why didn't you tell me this before <laughs> eight years earlier or just someone maybe someone I didn't like very much will start I can't I, I, I think oh this person's so weird and then person say hey Dr. Who you like Dr. Who too I'm like oh no wonder you're weird because you're just like me just another shade of strange <laughs> you know so I think that's how it works wow you know and then we, I kind of connect with people I in the past, I might have just written off, and I say, "Wow, this person's really interesting." And it may just because we have this Doctor Who connection, but whatever, you know, we're connecting. So, yeah, Tom brings this uh, steady parade of of odd people to my office. Uh, just, Here's another Doctor, <laughs> and uh, I just now all these people see me on campus all the time, and they're always waving. And it's it's just funny, you know. It's oh, it's the it's the secret brotherhood of Doctor Who fans that we have. It's like it's secret handshake or something, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, you see someone in a long scarf, and you think, ah, oh, that must be a Doctor Who. You <laughs> someone with a long skull. <laughs> if someone has a long scarf on campus, they have to be Doctor Who fans. Yeah, and then you go up to them and you say, "Oh, hey, like I like the long scarf," and you kind of wait, maybe say something in a British accent, yeah. hope they'll catch on. And if they don't, care for a jelly baby? Back away. Yeah, exactly. Perfect. <laughs> well, Mark, Tom, the book is awesome. It's available now. Um, Amazon.com, amongst many places that you can find it. It's available in the U.S. and the U.K. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark Schuster, Tom Powers, the authors of The Greatest Show in the Galaxy, A Discerning Fan's Guide to Doctor Who. Uh, we mentioned off-air. I believe, Tom, you're gonna, you may be at um, Gallifrey uh, in February yes, I, 2008. Yeah, I definitely want to go there. I, I have to yes. remember to bring my book so you can, you can uh, autograph it for me. Oh, wow. I have to bring my other ones too for Paul Cornell and everybody else to bring in. <laughs> might as well so just buy them again. My whole the library. Yeah, bring a steamer trunk full of books. <laughs> the book is wonderful. We want to thank you for joining yes. us on the 100th Doctor Who Podshock. It's been a great honor having you both here. And, Indeed. Uh, 
maybe uh, you know, I'll uh, type off something for volume two when you do your uh, yeah <laughs> when you do yeah, your next keep one. Keep in touch with us. We'll let, yeah, let's it know. has been it has been completely eye opening in, in many ways, and I'm mm. really looking forward yes. to going back and watching some of the episodes that you've you've really dug into and and uh, and and looking at it from a different perspective. Same here. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Great. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we thank really you enjoyed your show. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Great. Well, uh, hey, keep in touch. Will and do. we'll be right back with more Doctor Who Podshock right after this. I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love. I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love. I'm the pride of the highlands, that's the truth. I do all my traveling in a telephone booth, but I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love. I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love. I'm a time traveler, honey, and I can't get away from your love. All right, losers. Hey, James. I enjoy listening to your podcast. I'm only one of three people in Burnley to have a computer, so I'm lucky. Basically, we had to wind them up to lamppost, such was my determination to listen to your show. They don't know it yet, but the city of Manchester is about to suffer blackout due to an electrical shortage. All in all, your podcast is a great mix of phone-ins and camp mannerisms, all of which are courtesy of James. Much like the new series, then. Calling your tunes ready! All right, Mum, all right. Flipping heck. Mum's, eh? Oh, where was I? Uh, finally, can I just sign off by saying, well done, boys, keep up the great work, and can James possibly, in the future, play Misty for me? Thanks. Cheers. Bye-bye. Born the red was in the Scottish Glen Nearly been killed by the Cybermen But I'm a time travel honey And I can't get away from your love Hello. It's nice that we have a spectrum on the show. It's the Buccaneer look. Little dash of pirate and just a tweak of President Schwarzenegger. Ladies, your viewing figures just went up. As always, it's been a lot of fun. I gotta go meet a girl. There's a time and a place. Bone show. James, thank you so much for being part of the show. You got an excellent bottom, too. Shock.net.
have reached the midway point of our 100th episode thank you for listening and being part of the great success and fun you made possible in reaching episode 100 of doctor who podshop because this 100th episode is so mammoth we're breaking it into two parts this is the end of part one part two will be immediately following this episode we still have more great stuff ahead including an interview with wendy padbury who played the lovely companion Zoe during Patrick Troughton's time as the Doctor, and musician Jeff Smith, winner of our Doctor Who Podshop mashup promo exposition. So don't go away, we'll be right back.